Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ryan, the SVP of security at Enterprise Health, and we discuss how being high trust certified can save you tons of time on risk assessments when working with other companies, how we can incentivize better cybersecurity practices in the healthcare industry, and leadership lessons Ryan learned from his time serving in the U.S. Army. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Where exactly are you? Are you in Tampa or? Yeah, just outside of Tampa in a town called Apollo Beach. So it's like right between Brandon and Bradenton. Okay, I'm in Bradenton. Okay. Yep. Were you born around here or did you relocate? Uh, We relocated. So uh, I have a military background, uh, born and raised in New York, have lived in a lot of different places, mostly uh, in the Northeast and then throughout the South. And so what brought you, like what specific project brought you down to Tampa? So my uh, my parents uh, retired down to Florida and uh, afterwards my mom started to have some health concerns and health issues. Uh, so my wife and I moved the family down to help my parents out, getting to medical appointments, taking care of the dog when she had to stay overnight in different places. Uh, so we moved down to the West Palm Beach area. Uh, we've since obviously moved to Tampa. So that's what kind of brought us to Florida. Although we were ready to get out of New York because New York is uh, pretty expensive. The weathers are pretty brutal or the winters are pretty brutal. So we were ready to go. So when you were traveling around as a kid, while your dad was, you know, serving the country, is that when you started getting into technology or was it much later in life? So for me, so my, my father actually was a United States Marine, uh, but that was before I was born. So most of my travels were actually when I entered the service uh, oh, okay. and it, it, it's actually kind of funny the, the, the way I got into technology and security, because when I was in college, I was a business major. I, I, I bought my first computer in college. I was the guy who was asking my computer science friends, how do I open Word and all that fun stuff. And uh, when I got commissioned as an officer in the army, I immediately was sent overseas to Iraq. So this is right around 2003. Well, about eight months into my deployment, I was, I was a tank platoon leader. Like I was the cool guy you see on the commercials, right? Rolling down the streets of Iraq, doing all that fun stuff. And uh, the Armenian army in its infinite wisdom one day looked at me and they said, hey, Ryan, tomorrow you're going to transfer, transfer you to this other unit. We're going to make you a signal officer, which is army speak for IT. So they shipped me about two or 300 miles north uh, from where I was in Iraq. And they put me in charge of the entire northern Iraqi network, like the entire thing. They were like, hey, Ryan, great. We're, we're happy to have you here you know, super excited. We need help. While we're sleeping, you're going to be in charge of all of it. And I had absolutely no training whatsoever. So I went from being the guy who was getting shot at every day on the streets to making decisions about this really complex network that, you know, was kind of in a box that was stood up with zero experience. So it it really taught me a lot about relying on other people because I did have people working with me and they were, you know, subject matter experts, but I had to give that trust to them because I was making decisions where if I made the wrong decision, I mean, it literally could, could have been life or death for, you know, soldiers and, and trigger pullers that were on the ground. If they can't talk, then they can't call in for help. They can't call in for artillery. They can't call in for air support, all that fun stuff. So the, the pressure was really high. The learning curve was super high, but it definitely taught a lot, taught me a lot about myself and then, you know, how to, how to rely on other people. Yeah. How do you manage that level of pressure? Uh, well, you, you just kind of have to do it because, um, you know, there was, there was really no other choice. I mean, my, my training in the military up until that point was all about kind of pressure situations and, you know, leadership training. And they, and they teach you that you don't always have to make the absolute best decision, but you need to make a decision because if you get paralyzed in the moment, that can have negative consequences. So you learn to kind of weed through the uh, the, the noise, if you will, and really focus in on 
the important information or the important inputs that are coming to you from your subject matter experts or even outside factors. And you just, you just have to make the best decision you can. Yeah. Sometimes I notice myself getting a little like sluggish with decision-making or feeling a little bit, you know, back and forth on something. And that's typically my trigger to just make a decision because what's going to happen is the moment you make that decision, the parameters change. And so you can then make another decision and then, but if you just sit there with the same parameters and make no decision, then you're not, you're just stuck in neutral. Yeah. I, so there's a, there's a, a quote by Patton that I like that says a, a 70, 70% plan executed with ferocity is way better than a hundred percent plan that's never executed. So I use that a lot when, you know, making decisions that, you know, I may not feel like I have all the best information um, or all the pertinent information is probably a better way of putting it, but I have what I need to at least move forward. And I continue to try to bring in information because I may make a decision. And now I'm speaking both on the civilian side and because I'm still currently uh, serving United States Army officer in the Army Reserve. But those decisions that I have to make uh, on the military side, you know, you may make a decision and then several hours later, you may get new information that kind of changes the game. And you, you have to analyze that. You have to ingest it. You have to go forward and and maybe even you know change what your previous decision was. It's just it's just leadership. What has the experience been like going from the structure? So growing up, my dad was Air Force. That's why I automatically like assumed you traveled around as a kid for that. But yeah, how how has it been going from that structure where you're, you know, running a team in a in a military type situation? into the private sector or the commercial industry where people have jobs? Yeah, I think the hardest part for me was not only navigating kind of the get the job part of transitioning from the military, but some of the more cultural differences between the civilian world and the military world. I mean, as a, as a, a leader in the United States Army, I, I literally was responsible for people's lives, right? Even when we weren't in a combat zone, if someone did something that they weren't supposed to do and let's say ended up in jail, it wasn't their family that went to go pick them up and bail them out of jail. It was me because I was responsible for them. So there's a, a very distinct cultural mindset within the military about you know getting the mission done and taking care of people Whereas going to the civilian world, people care. Like, I don't want to say that people don't care, but there are those people out there that are just here for a paycheck. And having to learn how to deal with that was somewhat of a hard transition for me because I used to be able to just tell them what to do and they would do it or face the consequences. Now, I've, I've learned through you know, you know, progressing as a more senior officer in the army, but even on the civilian side, that diplomatic leadership is a better form of leadership when it comes to working within the civilian sector versus military. Not to say that democratic democratic leadership isn't important in the military because even that culture is changing, but it definitely, uh, I think, resonates more on the civilian side. Yeah, it's just two entirely different animals. And by the way, we're just hanging out. Like we can speak freely. And if you want to like edit anything after the episode or whatever, like we're all on the same team. So uh, I love having conversations about things that are somewhat difficult to talk about too, because those are some of the best conversations. Oh yeah, well, I, I used to say that there's civilian Ryan and then there's army Ryan because army Ryan would, you know, get up in your face and, you know, be very direct and be very blunt. and. And I'm sure some of my coworkers would still say I'm direct and I can be blunt, but I've toned it back a little. So yeah, there's there's definitely a difference between the military side and the civilian side. Although I do I do think that they're starting to merge to a certain degree. The military, at least on the army side, in my experience, is starting to take a different approach to leadership and the way that they're building leaders and and and, and scenarios in which leaders have to make decisions. And that's how you gain experience. You can't just learn everything about leadership in a classroom. You have to go take action and make it real and personal to yourself. So one of the one of the best lessons I learned actually was was before I uh, got commissioned as an officer. I was still in ROTC in college, and and um, like I we, we're a tight knit group, and all the ROTC folks, and we would hang out 
you know, because we're college kids, but we had this military structure that we also had to balance. And I learned a really hard lesson about peer leadership because a lot of my friends were of lower rank than me based on their year group. And when I was in my senior year, I was top dog, right? So I can remember we were doing uh, something called drown proofing, which is basically training where we teach people how to use their physical uniforms, like their their shirts and their pants to create flotation devices and things like that, just by blowing air in them. That It's actually pretty cool that the military, you know, for random uh, soldiers who would likely not necessarily be in the water to have that on their body. Anyway, I digress. We were doing this training and I was standing on the pool deck you know, like patting with my arms crossed and, you know, supervising and yada, yada, yada. And my friends, these people that I hang out with, like I, I truly call them my friends were like, Ryan, why are you not in the water with us? And I'm like, well, because I know how to do this stuff and, you know, I don't need to. And they were like, yeah, but as a leader, you should be, you know, here and doing the work with us, showing us the right way by example. And it became this huge issue between me and my friends. And I learned that I was wrong. So it, it's, it's leadership is ever evolving. I mean, like I said, I, I started out as the, you know, the, the patent type of leader where I thought I knew everything and everybody just had to listen to me to now. I think if you, you know, talk to the, the people that I work with now, I very much am looking for everybody to give me input and, and even ideas and help me make decisions as opposed to me just saying, this is the way it's going to be. Yeah, it's like we're AI algorithms, right? We, we get a lot of input and then we can <laughs> make our decisions better. Oh yeah, without a doubt. It's 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 definitely taught me a lot. I you know, I I tell people all the time that my military service as it, you know, likely is for everybody is is life-changing, but I think it made me a better person just generally. It it has its it's had its uh difficult times, um but it's definitely been a huge benefit to me personally. And while I didn't serve in the military or armed forces at all, growing up with my dad being in the Air Force, the discipline that he had and how he raised us, uh, I was resistant to it <laughs> as a kid. He would like come in and check on the quality of how we made the bed, right? And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was pretty intense. So, but you're resistant to it as a kid. And then when you grow up, I look back on it and I'm grateful for it because him showing me what discipline looks like, even though I was resistant to it, helped me out later in life. And so I, you know, I've talked to him as an adult and I was like, man, thank you so much. I, I know I was a handful back then, but I really appreciate it. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I have three children and, um, my wife and I have a very deliberate mindset about the way we want to raise our children and, and probably more imp- importantly, the way they interact with other people. So we're very sensitive in trying to be considerate not to have our children be disruptive to other people. That, that doesn't mean that, you know, if they're having a bad day or, you know, my two-year-old, if she's crying uncontrollably, that it would be this big, huge issue. But, you know, it's it's simple little things where let's say we're walking through the mall and my kids are doing this, right? They're walking, cutting people off. Like we stop that behavior and we show them, hey, you're stopping people around you. You can't be walking and then just stop because the world doesn't revolve around you. So I think that has a lot to do with, you know, my mindset. I do not go in and check hospital corners on them, <laughs> although that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think that um, it, it, it's helpful and I hope my kids will one day learn to appreciate it because we do get a lot of positive feedback that our kids are very well behaved and very considerate and you know very helpful. So it's interesting. Yeah, and that's one of the I was researching, you know, as a parent, you want to do well, right? So I was researching some of the top tips for like raising good kids. And I was getting all nerdy on it, like looking at some of the research and stuff as they followed kids throughout their lives. And I can't remember exactly all the items right now. So I wasn't completely prepared for this, but I do remember one that stuck with me. Um, and it was that you could determine the child's success based off of like their, how they interact with other kids at a young age. Like, so I'm constantly asking the preschool, like, you know, is Aria social? Does she have friends coming up? Is she isolated? Like, where is she at? And the other one was, um, if they have good manners, if you can teach them to say like, excuse me, when they're interrupting adults or just behave well, then what happens is the other parents will want your kid around their kids 
that, that also value good behaviors and then that'll create better connections and that like just helps with the child's progress in life. And so I said, all right, I'll focus on those two things. Yeah. So that, that reminds me of, of two things. One, one of my best friends, he once said to me, because, you know, as a young parent, you know, you're always worried about, am, am I, am I doing something wrong? Am I going to mess this kid up for life? And he said to me, he's like, if you're worried about messing up your kid, that means you're doing it right. Like you're, you're a good parent. If you're concerned that your actions are going to mess up a child, it's the people who, who don't care that, you know, have issues. But ironically, you know, we, uh, we have friends and neighbors where we'll like plan an adults only trip. We don't have childcare and they're like, Oh yeah, bring the kids. They're like little adults anyway. So luckily they're, they're starting to, uh, you know, show the, uh, the results of our, our strict ways, I guess. What's the age range for your kids? So we have an 11 year old, a nine year old and a two year old. So two boys, and then we have a little girl and she is, uh, she's pretty cool. The other two, I call them meatheads. Yeah. They're clowny, but we keep them around. So for the other people like in my family that have kids, like siblings between me and my wife, one has two boys and one has two girls. And so it's impossible for me to like connect with my brother-in-laws on the concept of what it's like to have a boy and a girl, because the love you feel for both of them is completely unique and different. Oh yeah. I mean, even from child to child, I, I can remember when we found out we were, we were pregnant with our second son. I remember having like a moment of panic and I was like, well, my heart is full. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I can't afford more love. Like that's impossible, but you really do find, a, I mean, it's not that you find a way it it's, it's just indescribable. It just, it, it happens. You, you, you have the love for all your children. That doesn't mean they can't annoy you. They definitely annoy you. Um, it's okay to not like your children sometimes, but yeah, I, I agree. It's raising a little girl now compared to the boys is it's different. It's not bad or good, different. It's just different. Yeah. Oh man, this is exciting. So how did you go from, from that, like working and doing all of that stuff in the, uh, you know, army to working at enterprise health? Is that how you say it? Enterprise health? Enterprise. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, I have a, I have a, I have a storied history. I'm probably much like everybody else. Um, so I left active duty after about five years and uh, my first job out of the army, I worked for a manufacturing company making boxes, like corrugated boxes. So th there's a lot of, um, you know, junior military officer programs where they recruit transitioning military officers, larger companies, because they recognize the leadership skills at the military in places and people. Well, this was one of those programs. So it was the first job I had out. I, I did it for a little while, ended up leaving the work-life balance it was not ideal. So it was a manufacturing plant. Well, if we had work that needed to be completed, you would have to work through the weekend. Like there was no choice. So depending on when orders came in, you may work straight teen, 14 straight days or more. And you wouldn't even know until the Thursday before whether you were going to work that weekend or not. So it just wasn't ideal. I'm, I'm very family oriented. The fact that I wasn't able to you know, travel to see my family because I was unmarried at the time just didn't sit well with me. Um, so I left, ended up getting uh, a few contract jobs based on my IT background, bounced around you know, doing contract work, ended up working for Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan um, in their IT security office went to work for MetLife, just bouncing kind of between the civilian healthcare sector and the Department of Defense, because after about two years, I decided that I missed the military and I needed to be a part of it again. Uh, so I joined the, the New York Army National Guard. I was living in New York at the time. So they would put me on orders full time and or they would, you know, they actually made me a full time employee at, before we moved to Florida. So I've kind of bounced between the two a bunch ended up getting a job when I was looking to move to Florida for a company called Blueprint, Blueprint Healthcare IT. Uh, fast forward several years later, Blueprint um, merged with another company called Enterprise Solutions and it formed Enterprise Health. So it's kind of how I've got uh, where I am or I, I came to where I am and uh, enjoying it. You know, healthcare, healthcare security is, 
it is not easy. Let me tell you, it's uh, it's it's pretty demanding, and and it's only getting worse. People want that data. They they really want that data, and sadly, historically, it's been very easy to get that data. What what does the company do? Like when you meet with people and you tell them for the first time, how do you explain? Because cybersecurity is such a broad array of products. Like what exactly does enterprise health do? Yeah, so we're we're a uh, let's say a cybersecurity consulting firm. Uh, we offer services and solutions for the healthcare industry. Uh, so we do everything from you know pen testing to risk assessments, tabletop exercises, and kind of everything in between. The only thing we don't really do is kind of manage services where we're going to put hands on a keyboard and you know manage your sock or something like that. Um, but my specific role is uh, doing high trust certification. So the High Trust Alliance is the governing body for this framework, the CSF, uh, that was born out of healthcare. Uh, it started in 2009. And you can equate it if you're not familiar with it to things like the NIST CSF. Um, it uses a lot of NIST 800-53 for its, um, its control sets. It's based on ISO 27001. It actually, the way they position it and, and you know, I will likely get on my soapbox because I'm somewhat of an evangelist for it, is there's genius behind it. it they, they call it the, the framework of frameworks. So they didn't go and try to create this brand new framework. They realized that there's a lot of good work that's already been done. Let's bring it together and create this kind of single framework that applies to all. And they, they really push the kind of assess once, report many. So for those for the folks out there that are listening, you know, I'm sure you're inundated with security risk assessments where you want to do business with somebody and they're like, hey, we need you to fill out this questionnaire. And you're probably doing it, you know, two or three hundred times a year. Well, the idea is that high trust satisfies that. You won't have to do those risk assessments anymore. It's becoming such a well-known framework and certification that they're willing to accept that high trust report. And there's good reason for it. I mean, the, the level of assurance that you get through a high trust journey, as I call it, uh, is way higher really than, than anything else because of the way it's all structured. So uh, to me, it's, it's I don't wanna say it's the future, but it's kind of the future, not just for healthcare security and privacy, but really for any, any industry. Uh, it really applies across the board. Uh, you can focus on healthcare. You can focus on other industries because it is tailorable. Um, but to me, it it really works because it it it's it kind of forces you to do what you need to do in order to maintain the certification from a security and privacy perspective. So there's a forcing function in there, and that, and that to me is the real genius because it, it kind of forces you to adopt a framework. You actually have to adopt it. You actually have to do it every single day in order to maintain the certification which is great because, you know, something like the NIST CSF is as great as it is. And I know the government, you know, this is the standard for the government, but there's nobody kind of making you follow it day in and day out. You can choose to adopt the NIST CSF and kind of craft it the way that you want to craft it. But if you don't feel like working on it or there's, you know, conflicting priorities where someone else said, hey, you know, for healthcare, we're going to roll out a new EHR well, that just became priority number one and security and privacy kind of gets pushed by the wayside. So with high trust, you can't really do that. Or your major investment in both time and, and, and money is for not. You know, it's funny. So I met Jason and had him on the show from high trust and that's how we got connected. But I was learning about it there and it's weird. It's like when you see a car and then you start seeing the same car everywhere. Right. So from the moment I met him, you know, I was learning about high trust. And that was my first introduction to the company. And then now I see it like at the bottom of so many of my guest websites, I see it everywhere. And so uh, I, and I personally really identify with the struggle because I've integrated software within the past, you know, year or so into a fortune 500 company. And that process, like the whole process was like eight months, but that security process, I'd say was a solid three months of this back and forth. And is this question applicable? No, because, you know, we're like cloud software. So we, that's not an applicable thing. We're remote. We don't even have like an office network, right? And like half the questions are about our office right. internal network. I'm like, we're a cloud first company. 
you know, like, <laughs> and so it was just uh, fascinating going through that process because I had never been through that at that level of detail before. So to, to have the concept of let's just adhere to one set of standards. And, and so tell me more about this. So like, I get that, I get the forms, right. I remember going through this process recently, we fill them all out and it's like, all right, we've got this procedure in place, this procedure in place, but they don't know because I just filled out the form and submit it to them and they approved it. They don't know if this is actually happening within my four walls. Right. So is this something that high trust solves? It does. And, and, you know, I would be remiss in, uh, in my duties because, you know, everybody in enterprise now, this becomes somewhat of a cliche because I say it so often, high trust is a significant emotional event, like 100% emotional event, because it is, it solves that exact problem, right? So a lot of different risk assessments that organizations will go through. It's basically, hey, are you doing this? Yep, I'm doing it. Are you doing that? Yep, I'm doing it. And there isn't, you know, depending on who you're working with, there isn't a check to make sure that you're actually doing those things. Well, the great thing about high trust is it's a trust but verify certification where you are required to fill out what's called a readiness assessment. Think of it like a, a risk assessment where there's a number of controls that you have to basically demonstrate your compliance to based on different maturity levels. Is there a process that complies with this uh, requirement? Is there uh, a policy process and is it implemented? So you take that entire assessment and you have to send it to an organization like Enterprise and this is where my team would come in and you have to have them come in and double check every single thing. So they read every single policy. They read every single process. They look at every single piece of evidence for every single requirement. So you have to actually prove that you're doing these things. So there's required on-site testing, there's remote testing, there's interviews. And it's, it's actually really, really hard. And like our planning timeline, our planning horizon for most new clients is about 12 months. And that's on, that's on the, you know, the, the quicker side. We've, we've had folks, organizations that have been doing it a, a lot longer because it, like I said, it's a significant emotional event. Nobody's job is high trust generally. So everybody's wearing another hat and it's, it, it really just, it's a, it's a culture change for the organization. And this is where, you know, bring it back to my comment about adoption. It's really about the adoption of the, the, the high trust CSF and that mindset. So as you're making changes, you just mentioned, you know, doing a software implementation for a fortune 500 company, the way that high trust works is they want you as you're making decisions on implementing a new piece of software or making changes on the network or changing your hiring and termination procedures, you're going back to the CSF and you're saying, well, how will this impact my certification? And if you're doing that on a daily basis, if you're, if you're consulting your, certif your certification, so to speak, then the, the level of effort when it comes time to demonstrate your compliance becomes a lot less because you've done the work for pretty much that whole time leading up to it. So everybody typically asks me, you know, what's the difference between high trust and say a, a SOC 2 audit from the AICPA? And the biggest difference is that high trust is really like five levels of checks. Whereas for a SOC 2, maybe you have two, right? So for a SOC 2, you have the organization who's being assessed, their management will attest that everything's in place, right? And then the AICPA firm will come in and they'll do their tests, one, two. Well, with high trust, similarly, the assessed organization, their management team has to sign a letter attesting that everything that's in the assessment is actually there, it's factual, it's true, it's compliant, yada, yada, yada. You send it to someone like Enterprise where my team is gonna very meticulously go through that check every single requirement on all the maturity levels. Once that is done, I am required by high trust, the, by the methodology, I have to take a separate team and I have to do a QA of that assessment. So not the folks that did the assessment, a completely separate team 
and myself included as, as the executive sponsor. I have to go through that assessment to make sure that my assessors did the things that they were supposed to do. And oh, by the way, make sure that the assessed organization is, is doing the things that they do. Once that comes back as you know, a-okay, we submit to high trust. High trust will then do a QA check of that assessment. Once it gets through the and, and there's there's usually you know a back and forth between the the third party organization like Enterprise and High Trust clarifying any questions or anything like that. Once that gets done, it goes actually into a compliance review within High Trust before a report is submitted. So five levels of checks on that one assessment to make sure that what people are saying they're doing is actually happening. That's pretty intense. So how do they sell this into the company? I, I'm going to guess a little bit and then you tell me how wrong or right I am. <laughs> so you get the hook is we can speed up sales and implementation. We can speed things up, right? That's one of the reasons you could get high trust. But then when they start going to this emotional event, I'm curious to how does high trust help the company learn these new cultural rituals, if you will. So, so that's usually done um, between what they call the third-party assessor, external assessor, like enterprise. There's, there's about 100 external assessors globally, enterprise being one of them. That relationship to get an assessing entity compliant and that cultural shift and all that stuff that we just talked about usually happens between that those two groups, high trust is is there. They're available to ask questions, answer questions, and uh, you know help guide and mentor. But it's primarily between the external assessor and the assessed entity. Um, the the biggest selling factor for high trust, at least in my opinion, is the fact that you can assess once, report many. Right. So if I'm a CISO out there somewhere, or even a CTO, you know. I'm going to get, I'm likely being bombarded with risk assessment questionnaires. That alone likely will save me, I can't, you know, countless hours annually not having to fill it out. And, you know, we filled this out last week, but these four questions are a little bit different. So we need to tweak it or we may need to go find the answers. You just send them the high trust report and they can do their own check on it or they may just accept it. So to me, that's, that's one of the biggest benefactors is the fact that it actually alleviates work for the organization that has been assessed and certified. The other piece is, is that it really kind of applies across the board. Like I said, HITRUST was born out of healthcare, but they've created it and they've massaged the CSF itself to make it industry agnostic. Now, if you're a healthcare organization, you can still make it very much about healthcare focused on EPHI and HIPAA security rule and so on and so forth. But it's in, it's industry agnostic where if you're a financial services firm, retail, manufacturing, hospitality, this applies because, you know, I, I always tell people we're generally not creating new ways to implement security controls. Yes, there's new technologies and stuff like that, but it's still all about confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? So... The fact that the CSF is kind of all-encompassing because it's going to touch every facet of your organization, facilities, uh, hiring and termination, obviously the IT stuff, privacy, legal, finance, it touches really every aspect. So you can take that information, obviously get better. It's automatically going to make you better, but you can then, as you deem necessary, share that with prospective business partners or prospective clients and say, hey, look, look what I've been doing. Look what I am doing from a security and privacy perspective. I will have your best interest in mind. Okay. So I'm almost understanding what your business does. <laughs> so I've got, I've got some <laughs> clarifying questions. Help me understand because okay. you're in it all day, right? But I'm like all over the place with yep. all these different awesome companies that I'm learning about. So I'm trying to, trying to oversimplify it so I understand, right? So what it sounds like to me, is like high trust is this framework you're almost like a high trust vendor or, or you provide this service so if i'm a cto and i'm bombarded with these assessments because i'm selling software into another company and in order to get that sale done i have to because you can't count the revenue right until it's integrated and delivered or part of it so i'm getting a lot of pressure as the cso or cto or cio from like the parts of the organization to get these assessments done right 
So I notice this issue and I come over and start searching, like, let's say I'm a healthcare company selling healthcare software. And then I go over and I find, you know, what's the solution to this? It's high trust. I would go to like Ryan, I'd go to like, you know, Enterprise Health and they would help me do the single assessment, like the assess once report many. Is that what we were saying? Yeah. So, so the high trust, the high trust Alliance is the governing body, right? So they're the only ones that can certify enterprise are the ones that are actually going to get you to a certifying state. And that's what I tell, you know, my, my, my customers is this is really tough. I don't care what type of assessment you've been through before. I don't care what certifications you have. This is different and it's tough and it's rigid. So what we're doing is we are taking you through that journey. High trust is going to get you from where you are today to a certifying state and, and hopefully beyond to that adoption that I was telling you about, because the way that the, the certification lifecycle works is you work to get certified. Let's say it takes 12 to 14 months from the time that you're certified, the clock starts ticking 12 months later, you have to do what's called an interim assessment. And what that consists of is you have to bring back in the, the external assessor like enterprise again. And we are required to take a look at a random sampling of the require the controls within the assessment to make sure they're still in place. We also have to check to make sure that any controls that were deemed to require a corrective action plan from the original certification, we have to check to make sure that the organization has made meaningful progress against those. They don't have to close everything out, but they have to be working on them. They, I mean, some should be closed, some should be in progress, some could be future state. So that's 12 months afterwards. So that's that first kind of forcing function to make sure that you've adopted the CSF. 12 months after that, your certification expires. So you have to recertify like you did the first time. So high trust, like I said, I, I use this term a lot, has a lot of genius built into it because it understands that environments change. Technology is dynamic. Just because you're certified, you know, on January 1st of 2021 doesn't mean that your environment's going to be exactly the same one year later. So they, they force us to come back in year over year and do these checks to make sure that your environment is still compliant to all the most recent and applicable security controls. That's interesting. I can see how that's a big pain point for people and that they would want to solve that because I don't, I want the other part of the organization to love me as the CISO. I want to get those security assessments done fast and the product delivered. Oh, exactly. And, and this really, that to, for the most part, this solves that problem, right? Because you can walk away with a very detailed report that you obviously, you know, would share confidentially with business partners that can show them exactly where you stand. And depending on the risk profile, and now, now we're going to get real into the weeds real fast if you want, depending on your risk profile determined by high trust, you may have some really stringent requirements that you have to demonstrate compliance to. So the way the way the high trust Alliance uh, kind of develops their assessments is based on a series of questions. Your risk profile is uh, developed. If you're considered risky, then, you know, the, the level of stringency of the controls and the number of controls actually expands based on that increased risk. So, you know, your potential business partners as a C CTO, they, they are going to have a laundry list of information about your organization that should answer really every question they have. Because the way the assessment works is for every single requirement for all five levels of maturity, policy process implemented, uh, measured and managed, there's going to be a score and there's going to be a comment and there's going to be evidence to back up those scores and comments. So you can walk away or read that report and feel really confident that what they're saying is in place is actually there. That's pretty neat. I got a really good understanding of it now. At least I think I do. We'll see. I'll start sending you people that come up and you'll be like, all right, Joel, nope. <laughs> but I did want to talk about something else though, because it, it fascinated me in our prep call. Uh, my team was telling me about government subsidizing digital transformation in healthcare. I was like, Ooh. get out of here. That's just something that happens. I, I had no idea. Tell me what that is. It, well, it hasn't happened. So, so you, so I had this brainchild, you know, and I'd like to think that I'm the only one thought of it. I'm probably not several years ago because in healthcare, 
the the High Tech Act was passed, and as a part of the High Tech Act, there was something of a program called Meaningful Use, and really what it was for was to drive digital record adoption. So these electronic health record platforms, the Cerners of the world, you know, the, the idea was if we can make medical records more easily accessible and available, then patient care becomes easier, especially for people who travel out of state for whatever reason, you can get your medical records easily easily accessed somewhere else. Whereas typically they're all paper records sitting in some you know cabinet somewhere in a hospital, not super easy to access. So this, this program was designed to drive healthcare organizations to adopt digital platforms. And there was a, a number of criteria. There was different phases of it also. But the bottom line was if, if you adopted this digital platform and you could demonstrate that you were meeting the, the criteria, you get reimbursed by the government. And there was there was big bucks, millions of dollars that were, as an individual organization, available to offset your costs of, of migrating to this digital platform. And and that was really, you know, because the government cared. The government wanted to, you know, make patient care that much easier for the healthcare industry that they wanted these digital records available. Quick side note, it also made it a lot easier for people to get at who should not have access to it. But I digress. My argument is if we really care about healthcare cybersecurity, which you would say HIPAA signed in 96, high tech in the mid 2000s, these these laws that have been signed in, into legislation if we that require us to do all the right things from a security and privacy perspective, why are we not incentivizing the healthcare industry similarly like we did for digital platform adoption? Let's let's create an, an incentive. And if you are able to meet X criteria, whether that's you know adopting a specific framework, having certain technologies in place, whatever it may be, there should be reimbursement there because security is not a profit center. I mean. And I'm not. This is, I'm not. You know, telling anyone anything they don't know. Security for a healthcare organization and other organizations typically doesn't make you money. It only costs you money. So if you're balancing spending your precious revenue on something that's going to make you more money or security, we're always going to go towards what's going to make us more money. So again, and, and there's a lot of politics involved with this. So that's why I kind of chuckled when when you brought it up. You know, if if we really cared about, if the government really cared about healthcare security, why would they not create a similar plan to incentivize healthcare and you know whatever other industry they deem important to really adopt uh, sound and safe security and privacy practices through technology and all the rest of it? Yeah, that's interesting. Have you ever been a part of any of those like committees or anything that actually vote or propose these sort of incentives at a federal level? No, I mean, this podcast is probably the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so cool. Awesome. Do you listen to the podcast? Have you listened before? I, ha- I have. I have. Oh. Any feedback? Yeah, I mean, I do I do a lot of uh, presenting, you know, for my job and stuff like that. And it, but no, I've never been I've never been invited to to present this idea. I, I, I think I think when I first had it, this is probably going back to I don't know, 2016 or 2015. I tweeted it once to see if it would pick up steam and it never did. So I was like, oh, I guess it's not a good idea. No, no, it's just the Twitter algorithm. We'll talk to Jack about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to talk about leadership. I was excited to to hear some of your thoughts on this. You have all of this experience in the army. Do you like pick and choose which ones, which like attributes of yourself that you that you pull from the army to kind of like make your own style? Or do you read and, and pick different parts from different leaders that you like? How do you come up with Ryan as a leader? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say that it's it's probably all the above. Actually, I actually want to write a book on leadership. I, you know, I have I have notes, so this may help me uh, formulate some thoughts. I think it's a combination, right? So I, I think leaders, it's both nature and nurture uh, in the sense of some people are just kind of born with leadership attri- attributes, but they still need to be honed and um, molded to be really effective leaders. And for me, I I think my leadership style 
has completely evolved going back to my other conversation, my earlier comments, and it will continue to evolve. I, I personally don't think that leaders should get really set in stone on, well, this is always the way I lead because situations change. You know, we talk about IT environments being dynamic and changing on a, on a, on a daily basis, but leadership scenarios are changing every single day. You have different personalities that you're trying to inspire and lead. And there's different factors that are influencing those personalities or the things that you have to lead through. So, you know, for me, I've learned that, you know, that democratic leadership, that doesn't mean that I, you know, shirk responsibility on making decisions. What what it means to me is that I own the responsibility of the decision, but I am going to gather as much input from everywhere. You know, one thing that I learned in the military is the lowest ranking person probably has the best idea because they're closest to the situation. So I want to listen to that person and I'm going to ask them questions and I'm going to use their input to help form my decisions. So to me, democratic leadership is really flexible in its application and its practicality. Being very draconian and it's my way or the highway, it, you know, driver type of leaders, which, you know, I've taken the personality tests. I am a driver. There's a lack of flexibility there that I think inhibits, uh, excludes, and, and can alienate um, the people that you're trying to lead. So for me, it's been a lot of, you know, good lessons and some bad lessons, uh, some successes, some failures that ha- has gotten me here. And, and I, I know that I don't know everything about leadership and I don't, I don't think that I should stop learning about leadership and, and every single day is a new opportunity to, to, to mold me. And, and recently I actually got selected um, last month uh, for promotion to Colonel in the army. And I, you know, all my neighbors, they were like, Hey, Ryan, congratulations. And I was like, you know what, this is just as much about you all as it is about me because my interactions with the people around me shape me and shape my leadership style. So, I mean, to me, it's, it's ever changing. It's ever evolving. It's, it's always about continuous learning. I love it because it's just true. It's what works. I'm curious to know. So if you were to like, if you were going to design the perfect leadership training program specifically for your direct reports, right? What is the most important thing that would be in that program? As far as lessons, like what, yeah. what points am I trying to get across? Like what behaviors do you want them to emulate? Like if, you, if you're training your direct reports on leadership and you want them to understand these concepts, what's, what's one of the concepts? Um, clear communication is critical. And, and one thing that I try to do, uh, sometimes it, it's almost to a fault, is transparency. People need to know what's going on. Whether they have an ability to influence that or not, being transparent uh, in the problems we're trying to solve or you know the the issues we're trying to tackle um, is is really really critical. That doesn't mean you tell everybody everything. You know, there's some things that you know as a leader you're going to learn <laughs> some things you need to say and not say. But generally, you know, you should be talking to your people and getting them to know exactly what you know, because like like I said, you never know where the best idea is going to come from. And if you arm people with all the information, then they have a different perspective than you. And different perspectives sometimes is the absolute key to solving complex problems. So I I think transparency and communication are really paramount. I think there are some assumed traits, you know, integrity, honesty, ethics, morality, legality, all those things that come with being a leader. Um, But I would say, you know, communication and transparency are are absolutely critical. And and I'll quickly, you know, digress into what taught me that. So the military, they, they, what makes the, at least again, I'm going to speak for the army, but the Department of Defense, you know, we're pretty successful generally. What makes the army so successful is that we empower junior leaders to make decisions. We don't reserve decision-making for the top generals when there is you know, a young sergeant on the ground who is seeing what's going on to make a decision. And that's actually what makes us a really difficult enemy to beat 
And we've had adversaries that have said to, to exactly that. The reason why you, we can't beat the U.S. is because they don't follow their own doctrine. Because all of our doctrine is publicly available. You know what we're supposed to do to set, you know, an ambush, you know, an L-shaped ambush. But based on the situation, we empower those young leaders with, we empower them with information to make decisions on the ground as the situation changes. Because that L-shaped ambush, we may have been expecting the enemy to come from this direction. Well, he, he or she may see the enemy coming from a different direction and they need to adjust. And that's really what, what taught me that arming people with information and understanding intent, you know, what, are we, what, is, what am I trying to do as a leader? What is my intent to get over this problem or tackle this project or what have you? Because if my people, you know, try to, my teammates try to bring every single thing to me, nothing's ever going to get done. It's, it's impossible. So I need them based on the information that I've armed them with, based on, you know, the empowerment to make decisions with guide guidelines, right? You know, I usually tell my folks, this is where you, you can make decisions for everything except for X, Y, and Z usually has to do with money. And as long as they understand what we're trying to get done, the information that I have, it's, it's impossible to beat that. It's impossible to beat that because people are going to make things happen in real time, as opposed to sitting and waiting and getting the information all the way up just to come all the way back down with more questions all the way up. It's, it's that yo-yo and it's, it's proven throughout history. That's fascinating. I have never thought about it from, I've never even heard about it from that perspective about why the army is successful. That is fantastic. That it, I don't, I can't even, I'm speechless, bro. I don't know what to say right now, Ryan. This doesn't happen much. Congratulations. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I, I was telling, you know, during the prep call, I said, Hey, you know, they said, you know, get emotional, you know, have fun with it. And yeah. I, I said, there is no short of emotion when it comes to, you know, when I get on my soapbox. I love it. I want to know what's the most impactful leadership lesson that you have ever learned. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I would say the the story that I told you about when I was in ROTC that one that one really shaped me, and and that was reinforced uh, when I actually was in Iraq as a tank platoon leader. I had I had a really great platoon sergeant, and without getting into the, you know the history of the military structure, for a platoon leader, the platoon sergeant is like the right hand person, the go to. Um, they're the ones who, you know, as a young lieutenant, as a platoon leader, you may have like six months experience. That platoon sergeant probably got 15, 18 years experience. I had a really great platoon sergeant in uh, in Iraq, and we were a tank unit. So tanks require a lot of maintenance. And a lot of leaders um, will tell their soldiers, hey, go change the, the, the track pads on your tank or go change, you know, the... Um, Go fill it with uh, more grease or something like this. Is really labor-intensive stuff, you know. Really, really labor-intensive stuff. And my platoon sergeant, he looked at me, and not that I had an issue with it, but he looked at me. He's like, "LT, we're changing track with our soldiers, and we're going to be greasing our own tanks, and I want them to see it, and they're going to feel it, and they're going to know that we're in the, we're in that hole with them. We're in that suck fest with them." And you know that went a long way for me. And, and we actually we had the best maintenance program of all the platoons in my battalion. Um, and not to say that, you know, I had anything to do with that, but I think it was because of that mindset that my platoon sergeant instilled not only in me, but our, our, uh, our soldiers that were in this together, not, Hey, go fix your tank. I'm going to stand here because my tank's good. We're all going to help that person get what needs to be done, done. Um, and that, you know, it still resonates with me today. Yeah, I could probably tell war stories for for some time, but now they're they're all they're, it's a blank at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm curious to know uh, any cool cybersecurity attacks that you dealt with in the military that you can talk about. Um, probably none that I can talk about. I, I will tell you the, probably some of the most fun that that I ever had was was when I was working uh, for a hospital, and um, we had. We had a, a really good, I was working in the security offices and we had a really good relationship with the compliance and privacy office and they had a tip line. So this is a big hospital. They had a tip line to report issues, PHI spills, whatever. So one day we got a, the tip line got a report that there was an employee and this hospital had a lot of celebrity patients, um, which obviously that stuff is, you know, needs to be kept confidential. There was a, 
there was a tip that came in that said this employee was siphoning patient celebrity patient information and selling it to TMZ. And like high alert, everybody's like, we got to do something about this. So we, uh, we, you know, gathered a lot of the information, trying to find out exactly who this employee is, where, where they work, yada, yada, yada. So my boss looks at me, he's like, all right, Ryan, I need you to, I need you to come in. This is going back several years. He's like, I need you to go in, to come back in tonight at like 11 o'clock and we're going to run this script. I need you to log in and see what you can find out. So we remote desktoped into the person's computer. We install Keylogger and all this other stuff. And we, we ran a script to roll back the last login. So when that person came in the next morning, it didn't say admin on it. It said their name. Like, And I, I got to watch this person for like three or four days. And I'm listening to their conversations. I'm, I'm looking at their IMs. It sounds really invasive. And it was. But there's, they, you know, this 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 uh, conversation that this employee was having with somebody, another employee was talking about, you know, people dying and stuff like that. And I went to my boss and I was like, hey, you know, they're talking about like people being dead, like this, you know, this person was killed. And I was like, we should call the cops. <laughs> like this is a big deal. <laughs> so lo and behold, long story short or long story long. The tip came in from a malicious ex-boyfriend. The, the employee was not stealing anything or selling it to TMZ. But I felt really cool because I was still, you know, somewhat of a young security analyst where I had to like come in at night and be, you know, really cool about it. And I, you know, I had to write these reports. So that that's probably my favorite story to tell because I felt really cool at the time. Yeah, I, I love it because it reminds me of like, when you're young and you want to be like the secret agent. And honestly, that's one of the drivers. When I first saw that, you know, like the script on the computer and I saw it in a movie and then I saw it at, you know, my dad's computer. And I was like, I want to be able to type in that, you know, I want to be able to like do that and make the computer do things. And, you know, it's just, uh, you bring some of the like whimsy back into it, some of the energy back into it. And I love that. And I admire it so much in you. And, and I would say this, I would say it's rare that I see people who are able to hold onto that throughout the entirety of their career. I see people, it's like an interstate. I see them constantly exiting at different ages. And as I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm still younger, you know, I'm only 33, but even as I'm progressing with my peer group, it's like, I constantly see people exiting off the interstate and I'm like, this is unbelievable. That's, it's just, uh, it's, I don't know. Aging is fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I become more of the GPS now. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I always talk to to my you know my teammates and I'm, I you know try to mentor them about you know the security industry and you know what it has available to them because even even recent college graduates they're not armed with the information on what they can actually do within the security industry. So I always tell them I was like yeah so if you really want to do the sexy stuff go get your ethical hacking cert and if you want to do this, but I agree like it, it's. I always, and this is going to sound like a cliche, but you know, if, if, if you're only working at work, then it's work. And, uh, there, there has to be passion. And, and for me, I have passion in healthcare. It goes back to, you know, my mom's challenges from a health perspective several years ago. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, I'm not smart enough, nor do I have the, the stomach to be a doctor, but this is my contribution to healthcare. And, uh, you just have to have that passion. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're, if you, you like to color, Color, you know, in the lines, out of the lines, just be passionate about it. I don't, I, you, you have to have that passion. Yes. Actually, when we were talking about back to parenting real quick, and we'll wrap up here. Um, but uh, my wife and I were talking as we as she was pregnant with our first. And I was like, what type of parents are we going to be? Like, what, what type of, you know, framework am I going to raise my kids under? And what, because you have, to, you can't pick one that, that doesn't allow them to be the, their unique self. Cause you don't know what you're going to get, but you still have to have some sort of like guiding principle. And so the thing I came up with is I don't care what they do as long as they do it very well, like master something and master something as quickly as possible, because I didn't master anything in life really until my mid twenties. But after you master one thing, you understand the effort it takes to achieve mastery somewhere. And then you can, from there, you get the freedom to choose what the next thing you're going to master is knowing the commitment that you're going to go into. So I was like, we just need to get them to master something and, and encourage them to be passionate and love it and follow through with it, even when it's difficult. Yeah, I, I agree. I, 
I, I don't have, I haven't had the same exact mindset, but you know, my mindset similarly is, is I don't care what they do, but I don't want them to quit. Yeah. It, you have, and, and that doesn't mean you have to do something for the rest of your life. You just need to finish what you started. And if you're going to sign up for a sports team, you may hate that sport. And, and my oldest, he dislikes sports. He, he does not like sports. And I've tried baseball, soccer, hockey, football. And he's, you know, he, he would come to me during the season and he'd be like, dad, I, I just don't, I don't have fun. I don't want to play anymore. And I said, that's fine. You don't have to play more, but you made a commitment to this team and we're going to finish the season and this commitment. Let's take the lessons that we learned in the meantime and, and, you know, figure out how we're going to apply those. But I agree. It's, it's, it's not about what they do. It's, it's really how they do it. That matters to me. Well-spoken. I Sign me up for the book when you write it. I will be <laughs> on the pre-order list. We will push it out through the audience. We'll let everybody know about it. <laughs> I, I hope you do that because you've got some great perspective and it's unique and I, I enjoy it a lot. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.